So as you're grabbing your seat, go ahead and get your Bibles if you've got them. Open them to John chapter 20. John chapter 20 is going to be our primary text this morning. But before we jump in, I just wanted to point your attention over to 1 Corinthians. Today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I hope that for all of us in the room, we understand just how important the resurrection is. It is a critical component to our faith. If there is no resurrection, then we have a mess on our hands, right? In fact, Paul spends a pretty good amount of time in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 telling us why the resurrection is so important. And before we jump into our John 20 passage, I want us to read it together just so that we understand how critical the resurrection is. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 14, says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Verse 15, We're even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Paul says the resurrection is a major deal. It's a critical component to what we believe. And he lists off four primary things that I want us to understand before we even get into the text today. The first thing that Paul says about the importance of the resurrection is if there was no resurrection, then our faith is in vain. And what I'm standing up here doing today is in vain. None of it matters. Why would it not matter? Because if Christ didn't die and be raised back to life, then he's not who he says he was. Christ claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be God. He claimed to come so that we could have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. So Paul is simply saying, if there is no resurrection, then Jesus was a liar. And everything that we believe and everything that we preach about it doesn't matter. It's all in vain. If there is no resurrection, then what are we doing here this morning? Second thing he points out is that we would be misrepresenting God. He's saying we're giving credit to God for bringing Christ back to life. And if Christ wasn't indeed raised back to life, then we're, we're saying that God did something that God did not do. And we know that that wouldn't be right for us to do, right? We are not God. We are the creation. We're not the creator. So we don't tell God. So he's saying, don't tell God that he's done something that he hasn't done. If the resurrection hasn't actually happened, then that's what we'd be doing. The third thing he says is, if there is no resurrection, we are all hopeless and dead in our sin. If Jesus Christ came just as a good teacher and a good man who died on a cross and that was it, we would still be dead in our transgressions and our sins according to Scripture. We would all die and stand before a perfectly holy God and He would hold us accountable for our sin. And the Bible tells us that we would go to a very real place called hell. But that's only true if the resurrection didn't really happen. And the fourth thing He said, we above all people are to be pitied. Why? Because He said you spend your whole life 
dedicating it to this Messiah that didn't raise. So why would you, why would you do that? He's saying you would be above all most pitied. Why would you live the lifestyle that you live as a Christian if none of it was true? So Paul is setting up this argument that the, the resurrection of Christ is critical to what we believe about Jesus Christ and what we believe and understand about this whole Bible and what we believe and understand even about our own salvation. So he's saying it is a must that Jesus is raised. And in verse 20, he takes away all doubt. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So because Jesus has been raised to life, these things are true. Our faith is not in vain because Jesus is who he said he is. He did come on our behalf. He did die on the cross. He did live a perfect and sinless life. He was buried in the tomb, and he did come back to life three days later. So what we believe is not in vain. We're not misrepresenting God because God says he's going to bring him back to life, and God did bring him back to life. And we no longer have to be dead in our sins. We can experience forgiveness of our sins and salvation because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection life that he provides for us. And number four, we are to be pitied above all. Well, we know that Jesus Christ has indeed come back to life. And we know that the equation is flipped. We know that the world is to be pitied. Those who don't have a relationship with Christ because we know according to Scripture what happens for them. So this morning, I want to challenge us from John chapter 20 about the resurrection. And this morning, we're going to look at this resurrection account in the gospel of John. And I want you to think of two things. I want you to think of this being proof that Jesus was, in fact, raised back to life. And I want you to think of how powerful the resurrection is in our own lives today. So let me pray for us, and then we will jump into John chapter 20. 20. Father God, we just thank you so much for this morning, for God, things for, that you've already done. God, I thank you for getting to witness baptisms this morning and, and celebrate with two young ladies who have committed their life to you, God. They have looked at this and said, we believe that you are who you say you are and that you have the power to not only forgive sins, but you also have the power to grant us eternal life. And God, we just ask this morning as we open this passage together, God, that you would use it to speak to us in a powerful way. God, demonstrate to us that this did in fact happen. And God, remind us of the power of your resurrection and the implications that it has on our life today. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's look at John chapter 20. Gospel of John records the resurrection of Christ, starting here in verse 1. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now this entire week, as I've been looking at this text and studying this text, I, I couldn't hardly get past this first verse. Because the, the, the whole idea, I like to picture things in my mind, but the whole idea 
that running up to this morning had been nothing but loss and hopelessness, right? Think about this for a second. Mary and the other women at the tomb, all of the disciples, they had dedicated their entire lives, the last at least three plus years, to following Jesus around and doing everything with him. And then they watched as people came and carted Jesus off and put him on trial and crucified him on a cross. And they watched with their own eyes that Jesus did in fact die and that he was placed in that tomb. And, and before Sunday morning, it just paints this picture of loss and hopelessness, right? And so even Mary is on the way on the first day of the week, not to go find a resurrected Christ, but to carry more spices and incense to, to, to put around the body. And when she arrives, it says it's still early and dark and the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And in my mind, I just vividly pictured this week the contrast between what's going on in this world and what is going on in heaven. I mean, think about this for a moment. It, it's bleak here on earth. It's early, it's quiet, it's dark. There is no celebration outside of the tomb of Christ. As far as everybody on this earth is concerned, the man, the Christ, Jesus, the one who claimed to be God, was killed and buried, and that was it. Nobody expected to find him resurrected, but yet we know the contrast with what is happening in heaven couldn't be more Drastic. You see, while everything was quiet and dark here with very little celebration, I can just vividly imagine the celebration that's going on in heaven in this moment. As that song said, as air began to fill his lungs again and he began to breathe and raise back to life, you can only imagine the celebration that was going on in heaven as angels get a front row seat for Jesus Christ conquering sin, Satan, and death and walking out of the tomb, and nobody's still knowing it. It just was a powerful image for me this week, and I just wanted to, to pass that along to you. This is just a beautiful, beautiful picture of what Christ has done. Let's continue reading in verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb, and both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and he went into the tomb and saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. I love the, the details that John's gospel gives us here. So Mary goes to the tomb, it's early in the morning, it's still dark, and what she finds is what is not something she expected to find. She wasn't going to find a resurrected Christ. She was expecting to find, though, Jesus laying in the tomb. And when she arrived, the stone is not only rolled away, but there is no body inside. So she panics, right? Mary goes, and she goes and gets Peter and John. Peter and John, they'll know what to do. So she goes and tells them and reports to them that the stone has been rolled away. They've taken the body, and I don't know where Jesus is right now. So Peter and John sprint 
to the tomb. And again, they're not going to the tomb or running to the tomb expecting to find a resurrected Christ. They are running to the tomb to confirm Mary's story. They want to see for themselves if somebody had come in. You see, grave robbing was very, very common in in, in the first century here. And so they wanted to go see if what Mary had said about Jesus' body was true. So they are running to the tomb together. And I think my favorite part about this story is that John is faster than Peter. Right? If you know anything about Peter, you know that Peter is probably a pretty competitive guy. I'm just guessing. All right? he, he's, he's got a little bit of a temper. He likes things to go the way that he wants them to go. And I promise you that he does not like taking second place in anything. And John beats him to the tomb in a foot race. And John may have beat him to the tomb, but the Bible paints this picture. It says when John gets to the tomb, he comes to the opening of the tomb, not wanting to defile himself, because you know how, you know, you can see these guys' personalities, right? You know how John is. John just wants to confirm the story is true, but he's not going to push it, right? So he just peeks into the tomb and, and confirms, yep, nobody, grave clothes laying right there. And so Peter comes up next. And so Peter may not have won the foot race to the tomb, but he was not going to be beaten by John in putting eyes on the situation, right? And so in true Peter fashion, I can just only imagine as John is still kind of peeking in the tomb and looking around, here comes Peter, you know, like right under the arm. You've seen little kids before, like go right under a sibling or a parent to get to something that they want to. And here comes Peter. I might have taken second to the, to the entrance, but I'm taking first into where Jesus was actually laying. And so he goes all the way into the tomb, and the Bible tells us that he confirms what Mary had said as well. What he finds there is no body and simply a pile of of cloth that had been used to prepare Jesus' body for burial. Verse 8, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. So now that Peter's kind of gone all the way in, why not? I'll just follow him in and see for myself too. It says, he also went in and he saw and he believed. He saw and he believed, but it's important for us to know here what he believed. You see, verse 9 gives us a lot of context. For a long time, I didn't understand this passage. For a long time, I thought that what John believed was that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Verse 9 gives us context into what he was actually believing because it says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So these are not two guys that are expecting a resurrected Christ. When they peek in and they see, and the scripture tells us in verse 8 that they see and they believe it's not that they're believing in the resurrection. They are simply believing in the story that Mary has told them. Mary was right. There is no body. They didn't understand yet, according to verse 9, that he must rise again from the dead. I have no idea how they haven't, because if you go back and do a study on your own, Jesus, many, many times over the last three-plus years with these guys, has made references to the cross. He's told them, I'm going to die. He's told them, three days later, I'm going to be raised back to life. He's even given them details about how these things are going to go. They even have Old Testament passages that teach on these things. Book of Isaiah, chapter 53, is all about the suffering Savior, right? So, so, but the scripture's clear. They did not understand that he would be resurrected in this way. So when they leave the tomb in verse 10, it says that they just go back home. 
And what John is trying to do here in this text, in this resurrection passage here on Easter, is paint this vivid picture of what's really going on. These guys are going back home because there's nothing else they can do. Like I said before, remember, put yourselves in their shoes. The guy that you spent the majority of your time with the last several years, the man who told you that he was the Messiah, that he was God, you watched him be beaten. You watched him stand silent before his accusers. You watched him be crucified and die. He really died. He's dead. You've watched all this. You've watched them pull Jesus' body off of the cross. You've watched them prepare him for burial and place him in the tomb. And now the worst possible outcome of this whole thing is now staring you in the face. Not only is he not alive to them right now, he's missing. Somebody's come in and they've taken the body. And they don't know what to do other than just to return home. So I want us to understand this, that John in this moment does not paint a very positive picture of the disciples, right? So many times we read this like, man, what men of faith here? And the truth is that they were not men of faith. They were men that were extremely fearful, as we'll see here in a second. But one thing is very clear throughout this passage. They know a couple things to be for certain. They know that Jesus really was dead. They know that Jesus was indeed placed in the tomb. And they know without a doubt that there is no body. And they don't have an explanation for it. And that's the question that they're left with. Where is Jesus' body? And so the finger pointing begins to take place, right? Like Mary says, they've taken the Lord. The disciples think that the Jewish leadership or maybe the Romans or possibly grave robbers or somebody has shown up and stolen the body of Christ. But I think more, uh, more importantly, they probably think it's actually Jewish leadership. And we'll talk about that here in a second, why they think that that's true. But they're left with this question, where is the body? And they're speculating that it was the Jewish leadership. The Jewish leadership is speculating that it might be the disciples. And you've got everybody pointing fingers at everybody else, and nobody has an explanation for where the body is. So I want us to take just a second to look at kind of our list of our usual suspects here. Who are the people that they would have thought potentially could have had the body of Christ and moved it? The first one's Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy man, the Bible describes him in John chapter 19 as being a secret disciple of Jesus before the crucifixion. He goes public by going to Pilate in John chapter 19 and requesting the body of Christ. Can I take the dead Jesus off of the cross and prepare his body for burial? I'm even going to put him in my own tomb. And so that's what Joseph of Arimathea does. The Bible tells us in John 19 that another guy that some of you may know helps him. The guy's name is Nicodemus. So we have two previous secret disciples of Jesus now going public by taking care of the body of Christ. And so they would have been the first guys on their list. If you're going down the list to figure out who could have done something with the body of Jesus, you start with these guys right there. Maybe Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, maybe they didn't put him in the tomb. 
But we have a lot of doubt about that, and we'll get to that here in a second. But it's very unlikely that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had any, any uh, reason to be considered the ones that had done something to Jesus' body. The, the next group, like we had mentioned before, uh, maybe it was the Jews. Maybe it was the Jewish leadership. But we know that that's not going to be true because the Jewish leadership in Matthew chapter 27, you can look it up and read it for yourself. The Jewish leadership actually goes to Pilate on Saturday after the crucifixion and requests that the tomb be sealed and guarded. And Pilate agrees to that. So Pilate sends a couple of his best guys to the tomb. He, and they seal it with, with his seal, the Roman seal. That's basically like... Listen, if you're a grave robber and you want to get in here and you're going to mess with the body of Jesus, the Roman government is going to mess with you worse, right? And so that was the idea. It has been sealed with the Roman seal. And in addition to that, he's posted guards. Now, these are just not normal guards. He sent the best of the best. These are, these are the Navy seals of the Roman soldiers here. They did not want anything to happen to this tomb. And the Jewish leadership particularly didn't want to. Because in Matthew chapter 27, their request to Pilate is for him to guard it because they thought the worst possible thing that could happen here is that that body walks out of that tomb or is carried out of that tomb. Either way, bad deal. Because we thought that he was creating problems for us before by healing people and raising Lazarus from the dead. We're going to have real problems on our hands if that tomb ends up empty. Because then the disciples, this is what they say, the disciples will begin to tell a story about the resurrected Christ and get all the people worked up in a frenzy. So basically, the Jewish leadership's like, listen, the last thing we want to do is for that stone to be rolled away and that body to disappear. So we know that they didn't take it out. That wouldn't make any sense. Same thing with the Romans. Why would the Romans? The Romans are in the same situation. Jesus is put on trial and crucified because of the Jewish standard of blasphemy, but the Romans don't care anything about blasphemy. Jesus is tried as an insurrectionist. He's leading people away. He's going to start a revolution. That's why Jesus is crucified by the Romans, not for claiming to be God. They didn't want him to cause them more problems. And so the last thing that they want is the people to be stirred up and follow after a guy that not only does what he says he was going to do, but he comes back to life. Do you see the problem that all these groups of people have? Nobody knows where the body is. They all know one thing for certain, that there is no body. That's the only thing that they know without a doubt in this moment. There is no body, and they're all pointing fingers at one another. And the, and the disciples. R remember the, the Roman soldiers that he posted at the guard? Like I said, these are like the Navy SEALs of, 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 of Rome here. Like, you mean to tell me that the best thing that you can come up with is that a bunch of fishermen came upon the tomb in the dark and beat down these Roman soldiers. Peter, who like two days before, gave his best attempt at injuring this man at Jesus' arrest, misses his head and nicks his ear. Those guys. He couldn't even... Win a foot race to the tomb. 
He has no aim, and he is their self-proclaimed leader. Those guys got together, and they came up with a plan to go and defeat these Roman soldiers and then move this heavy stone and do all of this. The same guys that just go home. I don't think that that would be a very plausible scenario either. So as we look through these as explanations for what happened to the body of Christ, it simply leads us to this one thing. I know this sounds crazy, but it's true. A physical resurrection is the most credible explanation for the empty tomb. Like I said before, there is no body, nobody's no no body of Christ there and nobody's arguing that. Nobody disputes that. Even in extra-biblical accounts, nobody disputes the fact that Jesus was crucified. They do not dispute the fact that he did die, and they do not dispute the fact that somehow the tomb was found empty. So we're left answering that question, where did the body of Christ go? We've already looked at some of the people, and I am making the argument to you today that a physical resurrection is the most credible explanation for the empty tomb. That Jesus himself walked out of the tomb just like he said he would on the third day. Let's continue reading here because the power, the true power of the resurrection is not in an empty tomb but in a risen Savior. So let's look at verse 11. It says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one on the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. The other Gospels tell, her that she, tell us that she thought that he was potentially the gardener. And in verse 15, it says, Jesus says to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will, I will take him away. So she's just begging this guy. If you know where the body is, let me know. I'm not going to make a big fuss about this. I just want to go get it and put it back in here because he means a great deal to me and 11 other guys. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, And she turned to him and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to your brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced this to the disciples. I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So in this powerful exchange, she first doesn't recognize Jesus. Remember, she thinks he's the gardener because she's not looking for a resurrected Savior. She's looking for a dead body that's been hidden somewhere. She's just simply asking this guy if he knows where she should go to find it. And Jesus, using her personal name, demonstrates to her who he is. By saying Mary, she instantly recognizes the voice of Christ and her own name on his mouth. You know, the Bible tells that to us. It, it tells us that God's sheep will recognize his voice, right? And that's what happens in this moment. And Mary is so overwhelmed at seeing Jesus stand before her that she just 
clings to him. Now think about this for a second. If you just watched somebody die three days ago, and you know that they were buried in the tomb, and you just went through this whole emotional mess of not knowing where this body is and all that, and then suddenly they appear before you alive, not just in spirit form, but in physical form, it overwhelms Mary. And the Bible tells us that Jesus has to tell her, listen, do not cling to me because I haven't ascended to the Father yet. That doesn't mean that she can't touch him because he hasn't ascended to heaven yet. That's not what that meaning is. What Jesus is explaining to Mary is, you can't hold on to me forever. That's what she's doing. She's so overwhelmed with seeing the resurrected Christ that she's clinging to him. So think about it. I lost you once in death. I thought I lost you again in not being able to find your body. And now you're standing here and I'm never losing you again. I'm never letting go. What Jesus is explaining to her in that moment is, I haven't ascended to the Father. You're going to have to let me go. Our relationship's going to change a little bit because I'm not going to stay here with you physically forever. I will ascend to my Father, and we know that Jesus then will send the Holy Spirit. That's what he's trying to help Mary understand. But in this moment, she is so shocked and overwhelmed at the resurrected Christ that all she can do is cling to him with everything that she's got. Then it goes on in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I'm sure that's an understatement as well. The other synoptic gospels give us more details about that interaction, but John here simply wants us to see that Mary and the disciples we're able to witness firsthand the resurrected Savior. That's where the power came from. That's where the power came from. The face-to-face encounters with the risen Christ led to lasting belief in Mary and all of these disciples. It gives us context for Acts chapter 2. How does Peter... Go from a man hiding in a locked upper room for fear of the Jews. How does he go from that guy, hopeless and dejected, to the guy in Acts chapter 2 that stands at Pentecost and preaches and 3,000 people give their life to Christ? Not only does he preach, he stands before the Jews in, in the public square and he says to them, he was really God and you killed him. You crucified him and you buried him, but he gets to the the punchline with him and he says, but he's been raised back to life and you can have forgiveness of your sins because of that fact. How does a fearful, cowardly Peter and all of these other guys go from a locked upper room in fear of the Jews to the public square proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ with all boldness? It happens because they witnessed the resurrected Jesus. You see, their belief and their lasting belief didn't come from this empty tomb idea. And I don't want to step on any toes here, but I myself have been guilty of this too. We put so much emphasis on the tomb being empty that we forget that the lasting belief didn't come from that. That still leaves too much room for speculation. If we simply today just don't know where the body is, what, what assurance do we have in that? We'd still be out looking. 
The lasting belief for all the disciples came from witnessing Jesus stand face to face with them. They got to see him and hear him and and look at him and touch him and feel him and it's really him. That's what fueled their boldness. That's what changed their life forever. That's what gave them lasting belief. That's what took all of them to their grave as martyrs. You see, if they're still out looking for a missing body, those type of guys don't spend the next 40 years proclaiming Christ crucified and resurrected if it's all make-believe and a made-up story. And those guys certainly don't go to their death for a story that's made up. So what we're witnessing here is a face-to-face encounter leading to lasting belief. That is the power for the disciples and Mary in the resurrection. It's not in an empty tomb. It's in Jesus face-to-face. That's where that boldness and hope comes from. He's looking you right in the face. And this is what I love, though. Even with all of that, there's one disciple that's not there. There's one guy. And we give Thomas a hard time, right? When you read through passages like this, you're like, what's wrong with this guy? Everybody else believes. But honestly, I'm reading the passage this week, and I'm like, you know what? I would have been just like Thomas. I would have been just like it. Look at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Honestly, I don't know if this tells us more about Thomas and him being a doubting person in Christ, or if this tells us more about his estimation of the other disciples. (laughs) Like, wait a second, hold on, hold on. Mary and all the, all the other women, they saw Jesus face to, like he's alive. Okay. Oh, oh, and he showed up to the upper room to all, you ten, and I wasn't there, really? Like I'm the only one? You're, you mean to tell me that Jesus is resurrected and walking around for like a week, and I'm the only one in this room who hasn't seen him? You can start to see where maybe some of this doubt from Thomas comes in. And again, doubting the word of the disciples, he's like, yeah, I think that y'all are messing with me now. But I love this about the text. Look at verse 26. It says, eight days later, his disciples who were inside again, or were inside again, And Thomas was with them. So Jesus waits this time until they're all hanging out. And Thomas is there. He makes sure that Thomas is there because Thomas is the one that he wants to understand that this is real. The other ones already believe, but Jesus wants Thomas to see it for himself and he wants him to believe too. In verse 26, it says, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See, Thomas didn't even ask this time. Jesus knows the questions that Thomas has before he can even ask them. Jesus knows he has some doubts. Jesus knows he's a little bit of a skeptic. And Jesus walks into a room without even using the door, appears before him and says, Thomas, he points him out, calls nobody else out personally but Thomas. Thomas, you come here. Thomas, I need you to do something. They already believe. 
but not you. So I need you to do something. You said that you wouldn't believe unless you could, unless you could see the nail holes. Well, come here and look. You wouldn't believe unless you could touch it and see that it, it really happened. Well, well, come and feel. You want to you wanna put your hand in my side? Go ahead. That's weird, but go ahead. If that's what it requires for you to believe, I, I want you to do so because I want you to believe. And that's exactly what Jesus says. Look at this. Look at the end of verse 27. He says, uh, put your finger here. See my hands. Put, your, put them in your own hands. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus' concern for Thomas was that he would believe these things. And so he offers him up an invitation to believe just like the rest. And in verse 28, it says, Thomas answered him and said, My Lord and my God. I love the patience of Christ with Thomas. Because I love the patience of Christ with us. You see, we're all invited to come and see that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is indeed the Christ, and that he did what he said he would do. Like I said, I love Jesus' patience with him. Thomas has doubts, and I don't blame him. Thomas is a little bit of a skeptic. You may be here this morning and be a little skeptical. Like, is this stuff really real? You mean to tell me that Jesus really came back to life and that he's God and he died on the cross and that my only hope for eternal life is in him? You mean to tell me that? You may be sitting here this morning and be skeptical just like Thomas, but what I love about this passage and what I love about Christ is that he's patient with us and he invites us in to come and see for ourselves. And he offers everyone in this room the same invitation. Come and see because his desire for you is that you wouldn't disbelieve, but that you would believe. That's the whole idea of this whole thing. I love it even in 31. Look at how John himself, the writer of the gospel, concludes this way. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, Jesus and John, they are both so confident that you investigating this for yourself would lead to belief that they invite you to do so. John says, that's why I wrote the whole book. I wrote the Gospel of John so that you would read through it. I wrote it so that when you read through it, that you would know that this is true and that it's real. And that God would begin to work on your hearts and minds as you go through this text. And he'd bring you to a place where he convicts you of your sins and shows you how hopeless you are on your own. And how you need him and him alone. That's it. He's the only way to salvation. But you're invited to come and check it out. I love that about this. That You're not invited to come. So many people look at Christianity like, what, like it's just some sort of fairy tale made up belief. How could you believe that stuff? Simple-minded, or you just need something to hope in after death. We look at these texts like this, and we go, how could, you, how could you see the evidence of the resurrection and not believe? That's what Jesus is telling Thomas. Come here and look for yourself. I've got nothing to hide. Jesus isn't afraid of your doubts. 
He isn't afraid of your skepticism. He offers you the chance to come and see that this is real, that he is who he says he was, that he did what he said he would do, and that he really is your only hope for salvation. So this is my question for you as we prepare to end this morning. On Resurrection Sunday, do you believe? And I don't mean just up here. Like, do you, do you believe in a general sense that, that Jesus did some of these things and that generally the Bible's... No, I mean, like, do you believe here that Jesus is the Christ? That Jesus did go to the cross as a sinless and perfect man and that he would give his life on our behalf and the 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 beauty of of the cross we we just had this on friday you know the worst part of the cross is it's not the physical torture that he endured while that was terrible and gruesome it was that god poured out all of his wrath on christ because payment had to be made for sin God just doesn't magically forget that we sinned and just, that's not how that works. Your sin was paid for on the cross by Christ when he gave his life for yours. And what we're able to celebrate today is the resurrection which put the final seal on the whole thing and proved to the entire world and anybody that would ever study and look into this that Jesus was God. And if God says that you can have forgiveness of your sins and eternal life by simply believing in Christ, then that is the truth. That's the invitation this morning. Do you believe like that? Do you believe with all of your heart that Jesus is God, that he did do those things on your behalf? Here's what I'm going to ask everybody in the room to do right now. If you just bow your head and close your eyes right where you're at. I want you to think about that question this morning. Do you believe? And I want you to be honest with yourself. Has there ever been a time in your life that you have come to the conclusion that you are a sinner and that you cannot earn your own salvation? Has there ever been a time in your life when you called upon the name of the Lord and asked him to be the Lord of your life and to forgive you of that sin? If you haven't, that's what I want to give you the opportunity to respond to this morning. If you're sitting here today and you would say to me, I know without a doubt that I do not have a relationship with Christ. I've never done those things then this is for you. If you would desire to come into a saving relationship with Jesus, I'm going to lead you in a little prayer right now. I'm not going to ask you to, to come up here or recite anything in front of me, but right there between you and God, if, if you desire to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and to have forgiveness of your sins, if you would repeat this after me right where you're at nothing magic about this prayer but this is about you speaking your heart to God let me lead you in this if that's you pray dear Lord Jesus I know that I'm a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness I believe that you died for my sins and rose from the dead 
I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Now the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10 verse 9 that if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It really is that simple. So this is the invitation for you. Here in a second, when we stand and we sing, if you prayed that prayer with me just now, I want you to come down front and I want you to have a conversation with either myself or Pastor Travis. And I want you to tell us that you began a relationship with Jesus today. For those of you in the room, maybe you're not ready to make a decision like that. Like I said, that's the good news of our Savior. He's not afraid of your doubts or your skepticism. Let me, let me challenge you with something. Look into this yourself. Read the Gospel of John and come to your own conclusions. Ask God to show you, is this true? And I promise you, if you would ask God that and read through that Gospel, He will reveal Himself to you and show you. But also let me give you a word of caution. The Bible doesn't guarantee us another moment. So if you know that you need to do business with Christ today, do not walk out of these doors without having a conversation with Him. For the believer in the room, let me challenge you with this. If you believe that this is true, then that means that you also believe that there is a different outcome for those who do not have saving faith in Christ. So the challenge to you today is take what you know, the good news of the gospel, and share it with every person that God's placed in your life. He's put them there for you to be a gospel influence and witness for. So share it with all boldness, just like the disciples. They believed it so much that it changed their lives forever. Unbelievable, radical faith and boldness to the things of God because they knew that it was true. Let me pray for us and then you'll have the time to respond. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. I pray that you would move and work in hearts and minds. God, be specific where I've been generic. Have your way with us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand right where you're at this morning. If you need to come and have a conversation with one of us, come do so now. We're going to sing a couple verses of this song, and then we will be done for this morning.